now. I have Michael Fonferra, best known as keyboardist for Downchild, sitting here. I'm really interested in talking to him about how he got into music and how he wound up in Downchild, but the, the path that he took, which is fascinating. So let me start with, you were born in Toronto, is that correct? I was born in um, Stevensville, Ontario. It's near Fort Erie, not far from Buffalo, Niagara Falls, right there around that area. And adopted at 11 months into a Polish family, a Fonfera family, 11 months old. Do you speak any Polish? I used to, and I don't, I, I didn't keep it. I had some when I was younger. And um, you know how kids, uh, I felt embarrassed that my parents were Polish, so I didn't speak any Polish. I tried not to speak it because all the other kids were like speaking English. And if I, you know, I mean, I just didn't kind of want to do it. I don't know. It's like peer group thing or right, something right. like that. So I, I went to a Catholic school. However, um, I, I, I didn't lose the Polish until I got to high school when we moved, we moved to Toronto in 1959. So I went to grade school in Fort Erie. And then 1959, we moved to Toronto to Etobicoke. And I enrolled in Richview Collegiate, which is where our former prime minister went. Mm -hmm. uh, uh, but I, when I graduated in 64. He didn't go there till many years later. But... Um, I, and I'm not embarrassed that I that he went to the same high school that I did. <laughs> and I understand Omar also went to, Omar Tunick also went to that high school. That's right, Richview Collegiate. And mm -hmm. um, quite the school, actually, you know, because all, my parents were middle class. Uh, my father was an aeronautical engineer. He worked for Fleet Aircraft, Aviro, um, de Havilland. He worked on the Aero and, and a number of things like that. But he was like, you know... And, I, my parents made enough money to buy a house in 1959 for about $20,000, uh, which I sold, or, or when they died, my sister and I sold for about $400,000. So, like, you know, the difference in, in, in price and all that, but, but middle class. So everybody else in the school were an awful long ways up from there. They lived around the Kingsway area. And their parents were way up from middle class. Most of the kids were driving Thunderbirds, Corvettes, and things like that to school. I walked a mile and a half every day. But when I started in 59, I wasn't playing uh, anything but classical music at that time. Okay, so you had classical training? Yes, I started at age five, and I had classical training. And uh, I was being groomed as a concert pianist. So did I, you go to the Royal Conservatory? or? Uh, in, in the very end, when we moved to Toronto, I went to the conservatory. I had private teachers up until that point. And I took my last, uh, like, grade 10, and, and I was working on the AR when I quit. But uh, I was doing quite well. I, it's like I had a drawer full of scholarships and gold medals from these competitions. I did rather well. I had a, I had a music teacher. You just wouldn't believe this woman. Her name was Lillian Dimitrov a Bulgarian woman, married to an Austrian man. At any rate, she was, she got a hold of me and she heard me play and she stood there and she nodded and, and everything and she said, yes, yes, you play well, but where's your heart? I said, what do you mean? You know, here I'm eight years old or something at the time. And she said, where is your heart? I said, where's it supposed to be, you know? And she said, I'll tell you where your heart should be. It should be in your music, not outside your music. When you're playing music, 
Your entire heart, your entire being has to be in there. And you must play with passion. She said, you play brilliantly. She said, but the passion isn't there. Boy, did she get me into that. She started singing along with me and when I was playing and just, it, it came to the point where I couldn't wait to get to hear her teach me. So that when I played, it seemed to give me surges of uh, emotion that I'd never had in the music before. Like when I played Chopin before, I played it technically perfect. When I played Chopin after she got a hold of me, it tore me up. And then, of course, I moved on. I, I kind of shone in the Bach and Beethoven area. I got to Rachmaninoff and everybody else, and I was playing Stravinsky. But my heart was in it then after she got a hold of me. She would sing with me while I played. And every competition that I went into after that, like I used to go on these little talent shows on TV and then I'd go to the Kiwanis festivals and that gold medal, gold medal, gold medal, scholarships. She, whatever she did for me was incredible. Got to high school and I wasn't interested in girls because I was just 12 years old, just turned 13 in 59. So I didn't care about girls, I thought they were yucky. <laughs> and I was sitting in class and I'm up near the front there and, uh, and I just casually turned around and it was the first time I ever had this strange feeling that maybe there was something more to girls than, <laughs> than I had thought before. So there I was with the hormones kicking in. I was 13. Um, so by the end of that year of grade nine, uh, they had already tapped me in the school for, uh, I did all the, uh, like whenever they had anything in the auditorium or any kind of shows or anything, I was featured piano player. Right. Plus, I was the then I was the piano player soloist with the or, with the school orchestra to play the concertos and stuff, and also I studied cello with them. But uh, I realized at that time that none of those girls cared anything about a classical music player, classical piano player. However, a couple of fellows I knew were in bands, and uh, and they were surrounded by girls. And I thought, you know what, how am I going to do this? Join a band. I'm trying to think about how to do this. And I heard on the radio, I heard Ray Charles playing What I Say. Dun, 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 dun. When I heard that, I lost it. I First of all, I didn't realize. See, because growing up in the white society that I did, I didn't really realize what black people were or what they had anything to do with music. I had, I had no idea. Mm -hmm. I was like a white concert pianist kind of guy, you know? And did you have much exposure to radio at all? Well, yeah, but I wasn't listening to popular radio right. when I was in Fort Erie, and I didn't start listening to it till we got to Toronto. So I was listening to it then, you know, Chum, CKEY, and various stations. So when I heard Ray Charles do that, I lost it. And, uh, and I thought, I want to play this music. And I was asked to join a band, and it was the Checkmates before John Finley got into it. It was Lee Jackson and the Checkmates. And I couldn't play that music. I couldn't play rhythm and blues. I just couldn't do it on piano because the only stuff I could play was on the sheets, and I'd learn it, memorize it, and do a good job of it, but I couldn't improvise, I didn't know how. Mm -hmm. So I tried and tried, and then I realized I was having such a hard time of it. I asked my dad to buy me a Hammond organ, a B3. Um, and you're still 
16, 17, that area? Well, I was like 14. 14 wow. So, and then he said, yeah. And I paid him back $80 a month for three years to pay for this B3. He bought me my first B3 in Leslie. And I relearned how to play from, from the ground up on a new instrument. Left piano out of it altogether. Just ditched it. Didn't even touch. Well, I had to, for the school, I had to go and play bogey and whatever else they want, you know, some concerto pieces. But that wasn't what I was interested in at all. And so I played Hammond organ and over the next few years began to become proficient at that. It wasn't until about, well, when I joined the Electric Flag, they asked me, uh, Mike Bloomfield got me to play piano on the first record that I did with. And, uh, and that's the next time I started playing piano. And I kind of got it back in the fold afterwards, but uh, I didn't have but it back we, yet. Can we just go back a little bit? Sure. So when you were five, and obviously you started playing classical music because your parents probably forced you to do this. Actually, my mother bought me a piano, asked me to, and got me taking lessons, and I took to it like a duck to water. I was absolutely thrilled. I didn't mind practicing because when I did, I got to spend extra time outside playing hockey I got an extra treat after dinner, one more little tart piece of pie, something like that. Because of, because of the appreciation that my mother and my aunts and the other ladies around, the men, I mean, they, well, whatever, they want to take me hunting instead. But the girls, all, all the women in the family, were, were thrilled with piano, the boy that played piano. So they'd ask me to play a piece or two, I'd play a piece or two, and they, I was as spoiled as you could get at that point. So you enjoyed just, playing classical music? And oh, yes, yeah. I still do, and I'm starting to break back into it a little bit, you know. Uh, so how difficult was it? Because I, I know that, you know, that there's a big difference between playing um, through sheet music versus improvising. Yes. So you've gone through that frustration, or you've gone through being technically able to play, but to not be uh, able to improvise. Right through that stage, yes, <clears throat> tell me, Tell me what that was like. Like, how does one learn how to improvise when you've already gotten a certain level of classical training? I had to change instruments. When I changed instruments to the organ, you can't play the organ anything like the piano. There was nothing in, in common between the two of them, aside from the keyboard being the same notes. Nothing. I had to change everything, my entire style, everything. I, from the ground up, I had to learn note for note, things that the R&B players played. And uh, then I began listening to people like uh, Booker T, Jimmy Smith, uh, uh, Jimmy McGriff, and uh, Brother Jack, and people like that. And I, and I began to get an idea about how organists played different mm -hmm. than piano. And, and, and learning basically through copying initially. Initially from, from listening to them, which taught me how to learn how to play by ear, period. And that carried over to my piano. When I got piano back, I started bringing it back in. I was using my ear mm -hmm. instead of uh, trying to remember things that were on the sheets and stuff like that. So it changed my, it didn't change anything except that it added another dimension to my playing. I could still read music and remember it or memorize it, not. But I was really, really interested in, in, in what I could hear and what I could do without reading any music at that point, right? Mm -hmm. And then... Getting in, so getting in band with the checkmates, um, completely. I mean, like switching from uh, Rachmaninoff to uh, Booker T, is just like you know, so completely different. And we did R and B and really deep south uh, soul music, gospel music, and real blues. 
And all of that was completely removed from the classical, you know? Mm-hmm. And, uh, but it was on another instrument. And then I started picking up electric piano to go with it, like Rhodes and uh, Wurlitzer and, and that. And that led back to piano, which get which I gathered in, you know, back in again. Can I ask you what the training that you had from classical music, how would that have helped you in this process? I mean, in some ways, it sounds like you, you stayed away as much as possible. From At it, first, but, yeah. But Chops. tell me about the, the positive side. Chops. My fingers were trained to move like, like crazy, like wildfire. And all I had to do was, you know, allow them to do what I could hear instead of what I'd remembered that was written. So. And how long would that process take in order that you're comfortable with improvisation? Oh, uh, it didn't take too long. A year, two years, maybe. Uh-huh. You know, by the time I was 16, I could pretty well improvise on on the Hammond organ and. I hadn't yet brought piano back. I didn't do that till I was with the flag, which would have, I would have been 19 at the time then. So before we get to the flag. But I was improvising, improvising on the, on the organ, mostly on the Hammond organ. Well, how did your parents feel about this transition? Do you know what? Um, my mother thought, well, you know what? I, I hope I didn't, you know, um, really, really waste part of your life uh, by... Uh, you know, having you in the classical music field and then now you're doing this and what are you going to get from this, son? And I said, girls. <laughs> so, and she said, well, you're not in it for the money then. I said, no, that would be nice too. But, you know, that's actually what inspired me, Mom. And, you know, and now that I'm kind of thrilled with some, with the idea of being with girls. Not all girls, mind you, da, 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 da. And there's my mother. My father's like sort of just rolling his eyes and walking around. And... um but making a living in music at any time, even then, would have been difficult whether you were cla- if you pursued classical music or anything else, right? You know what? The other guys, okay, here's a real quick story. I'm in high school. I'm in a lower, like, um, like a middle-class family. Everybody else in that school is, like, loaded. So they were fraternities, right? I tried to join every fraternity. I was turned down because my parents didn't have money. Hmm. Turned down, turned down, turned down, turned down. I joined a band. We played the very first dance that we played at that school. We played a dance. Every fraternity asked me to join. You know what I said? Sorry, boys, but I don't need you anymore. Um, Well, Mike, what are you doing this weekend? They wanted to know where to get some girls, too, now that I had a bunch. And it was... It was funny because I didn't really do it as revenge or anything. It's just that I had no longer felt like I wanted to belong to a society, um, which was, you know, basically a bunch of guys that, to me, they were just rich kids that they were had. They were trying to have fun, right? But they didn't have anywhere near the fun you could have when you were in a rock and roll band or an R and B band. Believe me, I mean, we had serious fun and also, so you know, my allowance was two dollars a week. Okay, we're in the early 60s here, $2 a week. That's what I got. I was making 60 bucks a weekend right after I joined the band. Well, all of a sudden... And you're playing basically clubs at this point? What dances. Dances? No clubs. I mean, we were way too young to drink. No, right. no nightclubs. Uh, we were playing dances. Krang Plaza, the Mema Combo, uh, uh, all the places like uh, uh, Gogin, uh, all those um, you know places where they had younger bands the same places uh 
Richie Knight and the Midnights, Little Caesar and the Consoles, Robbie Lane and Jay Smith and Majestics, Kay Taylor and the Regents, all those bands, they were playing the same kind of places we were playing. And so we broke into that circuit. Then the Checkmates became ultra popular and we opened the City Hall. We played uh, like uh, events with thousands of people. We got taken to New York and we played for 62,000 people at Shea Stadium. And um, what was that like? It was it was kind of good, you know. Uh, we played there twice in a row, and uh, a second time, what they did was they they literally commissioned us to write a song. Batman had just come onto television, right? And Batman and Robin thing, right? right? And they wanted a dance. They already had the Batman theme for the show, but they wanted a dance that was like associated with Batman. So we wrote a song called the Batusi, which was the um, combination of the Watu, uh, uh, Watusi, Watusi and Batman. Yeah. Anyway, we wrote a dance and designed the steps ourselves, and it was quite good. So we recorded it, never got released anywhere, but it was called the Batman Batusi. And we played it at Shea Stadium, and we were playing it. The audience was on their feet, and overhead comes a helicopter. They didn't tell us about this helicopter drops down the rope ladder and down comes Batman and Robin fully dressed by uh, 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 the both of them uh, uh, Adam Adam and West Weston, and uh, yeah. and uh, Robin's name I forget who his name is like he that's right the Bert Ward, Ward cuz yes. my wife went out with him for a while now I remember the name <laughs> at any rate they came down they dropped down right on the stage right in the middle of that song and it was it was kind of fun so was was this part of a review? Like, was it your band only playing at Shea Stadium, or was it a no, bunch of bands? No, the Young Rascals were there. Um, what happened was we ended up, uh, in the end, Rhinoceros ended up being managed by the same guy, Sid Bernstein. He'd so got, this was he sorry, brought the John Beatles Lee to and, North America. John Lee and the Checkmates became this, Rhinoceros. John Lee and the Checkmates didn't become Rhinoceros, but most of us ended up in Rhinoceros because Electra Records went around the country looking for. Um, what they thought was going to make a super group. And it happened that a bunch of us were what they thought were super group quality. It was like tryouts for a football team, though. There's 17 of us in the room at the same time. And they just said, okay, whichever, you know, make a band out of it. Uh, and, uh, you know, and seven of us stuck together because we had the right chemistry. And it just, uh, Danny Weiss and I instantly hit it off so well that. I ended up living at his house, and uh, you know he had brought Jerry Penrod because Danny and Jerry uh, were in the Iron Butterfly. Danny wrote the first album, Heavy, right? Right. And then um, John Finley, Alan Gerber came from Chicago. Doug Hastings came from uh, uh, Buffalo Springfield, and uh, uh, a Daily Flash from Seattle, and um, and, and Billy, Billy Mundy from the Mothers of Invention. So they gathered these guys together. Well, they had them from all these other bands too, but those those of us that stuck it out were the ones that liked playing together instead of competing. Like I wasn't competing with the other organ players. I would just wait for them to finish, right? And then go up and play. And then, so anyway, so most of them got lost. The same with the guitar players. They all got lost. Danny and I were grooving because every time I'd play, Danny would rush over the guitar or, or vice versa, and we would start playing together. So that looked obvious to everybody, including the record company, when they'd come in and see a rehearsal. And they'd watch Weiss and I joined at the hip already, and we just met each other. And plus, Finley and I had been doing it since we were quite young, you know. Mm -hmm. 
And uh, and Peter Hodgson was on bass at first, but then he, Danny we didn't come into the band without bringing his bass player, Jerry Penrod. So Peter didn't end up on that first album. Jerry Penrod did. But uh, Jerry was a wonderful bass player too, but he had some problems and he had to get out. Anyway, Peter Hodgson ended up being the bass player in Rhinoceros anyway. So... Um, and how did, the, how did the band do in the states? We were good. We were we were poised. We were poised to be the next super band because, um, well, a lot of things happened. I know this sounds strange, but when Woodstock happened, the people that were putting Woodstock together were friends of mine, and they called me and said, "We don't want to talk to your management. We want to ask you if you can bring us rhinoceros for the fest. We're doing a big festival." And I said, I would love to, you know, I'd love to do that. Let me see if who I can convince. They said, please do. At that time, we were on the road. Uh, our opening act was Shanana. They would open for Rhinoceros. So, and, you know, they were university kids that were doing this. 50s stuff. 50s stuff. Yeah. So our management wouldn't let us do Woodstock because they said they'd already had us booked on a gig that was making real money instead of the $1,500 Woodstock was offering. And I said, who cares about the money? I think this is going to be a big show. They said, ah, kid, there's always going to be big shows. Don't worry about it. Ah, kid. So they made a mistake, and we made a mistake by going along with it. Right. We should have just told them, we're doing it anyway, even if we don't get paid. And then they would have fired us because we didn't, or, you know, it would have cost, because they booked us for 4,500 bucks in some other place. Big deal, $3,000, you know? I mean, I, I, you know, the whole band was really upset, really upset. And it's, in fact, what broke Rhinoceros up. Because the next gig we did with Shanana, we opened for them. Mm -hmm. Yeah, because it changed a lot of that bands. That blew my mind. What are we doing opening up for this 50s imitation band? Uh, you know, and we were an original band that just everywhere we played, we just rocked them. Us and Led Zeppelin together were the two driving bands that you could like, in, you know, uh, uh, the northern U.S., anywhere around there. So you're 19 at this point, 1920 by now. I was born in 46. So, so at this yeah. point, are you thinking I was 20 by then? And you're thinking this is my career? Oh, yeah. Oh, I'm convinced. Like. And do you know what that was? Like back in like late 60s, what does a musical career mean? Like what did well, you... Well, it just means selling enough records um, to not worry about money and uh, and being on the road, enjoying yourself with your band, you know. You, you didn't think much further than that. Like I, I figured, you know, people would say to me, well, you know, what are you going to do when you're older? I said, you know, okay, and I figured out, okay, in the year 2000, I'll be 54. I'm not even going to make it that far. Or who wants to? You know, <laughs> believe me, I don't even need to get there. Right now, things are like heaven for me. And and then, of course, one thing led to another, you know. And now you're living Before in... Before Rhinoceros, though, the Checkmates broke up in New York. Right, okay. So you're now and living in New I York. I was living in Central Park on a bench. <laughs> but... I got a message. There was a bar that I used to go to all the time that we all did, and all the rock stars went there. It's called. It was called the Scene. Steve Paul's Scene. He had a Scene West and a Scene East. And, uh, the Scene West was where, like, any of the big bands that were in town, they're playing uh, Madison Square Garden or anything like that. That's where they went at night to hobnob, right? So I got a message. I was in that bar, living on the bench in Central Park. I got How into the bar. How long were you living on the bench? 
because I had no money. No, how long were you living there? Oh, geez, a number of weeks, anyway. Um, I know it was summertime, so I was happy enough, but uh, I was begging quarters right. to buy, like you could buy two hamburgers for a quarter at the corner of 42nd and Broadway. So, um, you know, that's how I was living and wondering what I was going to do. Do I have to go back to Toronto? Oh, I don't want to because I love New York City. I was living on the bench there instead of living in at my parents' place in a really nice place. You know? <laughs> so, so I'm there, I get a message in the bar, and it's from uh, Buddy Miles to meet him there the next night, that he wanted to talk to me. He knew I was around because they told him they'd seen me. And uh, the reason I knew Buddy was because I met him and Jimi Hendrix when they were both working with Wilson Pickett. Checkmates did a gig opening for Wilson Pickett in Hamilton at the old Coliseum, the big, uh, great big uh, arena they had there. Checkmates opened for Wilson, and we did such a good job, the, the audience mobbed at the stage. Uh, and security had to hustle us backstage and everything else, and the crowd was going crazy. Wilson refused to go on. He made the crowd wait for an hour and a half before he'd go on. In the meantime, we were in our dressing room in the bunker there at Checkmates. We were still congratulating ourselves, such a good show. Knock on the door, it's Buddy Miles and Jimi Hendrix. And they both came back to tell us how much they enjoyed our show. And Buddy came over to me and he said, if you ever need a job, please make sure you get a hold of me if you ever want to play with another band. Hmm. So That's pretty good. I get the message from Buddy and then I showed up at the bar from Central Park on the bench. I met him there and he said, would you like to join my band? I said, yeah. He said, it's the electric flag. I said, what, the band that's got the number two hit on like on Billboard right now? It was uh, Groove It Is Easy. And uh, he said, yeah. And I said, well, what do you mean? He says, join the band now. He says, you're in. You're replacing Barry Goldberg on the Hammond organ. He has to go. And I want you. And Bloomfield has said that I can have you if I want. So I said, well, yeah, what does it entail? He said, where are you living? I said, well, nowhere. He said, here. And I just couldn't believe this. He handed me $1,000 in cash, a, a key to a penthouse suite at the Hilton, and a big stack of open airline tickets that I could fill out to anywhere in the world I wanted to go, all at once took me to my hotel room and said, you're in the band, buddy. Tomorrow morning, we're leaving for Boston. We play in Boston tomorrow night. I said, well, what about rehearsals? Me knowing tunes. He said, you leave that to me. And I, and then that's when I joined the band. And then we were on the road for a while, six months or so. We went to LA to do that album, Long, A Long Time Coming. And right. we did that album. And after that album, I, I went to Rhinoceros. Huh. Why did you go Rhinoceros? I mean, what, okay, what happened to Electric Does this Flag? have to be on the interview? <laughs> I got busted for a joint. Oh. I, I, I actually, I had a, a joint in my cigarette package. One joint. Because this is a different time. This is L.A., 1967, yeah. 66, 67. So I got busted. They threw me in the L.A. County bullpen. I was in there for two and a half weeks uh, before I could get out. And um, How scared were you? I was really scared. I got beat up every day by uh, some really large guys of, you know, great big Mexicans and, and blacks that I'd never in my life encountered anything like this. They just beat the crap out of me every day. For no reason at all, except Just that. for being a white, skinny white boy with long hair who didn't, couldn't defend himself. 
when I got out, I, I began martial arts the next day and I studied like a devil for 13 years. I have three black belts, a number of Kung Fu degrees, and I became a kickboxer just because I didn't want people to beat me up because they were bigger than me. Okay, so did you ever wind up going back to jail at all? No. No, I didn't. But you could Oh, kick- I mean, overnight once, Hap Rotterman and I went uh, to jail, but then they dropped the charges. It was for another, for a joint and a car. Were you concerned about being sent back to Canada? Or being, was that an no, issue No, I was outraged. I was, uh, what I did was I said I wanted to go to the Canadian Embassy and all this other stuff and that um, I was going to bring pressure down on the, on the L.A. Police Department, right? Here I am, Mr. Smart Guy, Mr. Big Stuff, you know, with the long hair and it's like it bruises all over him from being beat up by these yeah. idiots. I tell you, though, that the worst of the, of the criminals there when you're in jail are not the guys inside the bars. They're the guards outside the bars with the billy clubs. Well, I'd walk by the bars close enough, and any one of the guards, when they would see you, they'd just jam you in the ribs with the billy club right between the bars. And then then laugh, you know, and, and look at each other, and go, oh, did you see how, we, how he went down there? And like, you know, they, I don't know, they just seemed like they were cruel. Hmm. The guys behind the bars there, they were cruel, but they were criminals. Like, I didn't expect them to be criminals that were guarding us but they, they seem to be more like criminals. But this meant that you couldn't be in the band anymore. Albert, I had one phone call. You know, they give you one phone call and you go in. I phoned Albert Grossman, our manager. And Albert said, you really blew it this time, kid. I'm not helping you out. And he slammed a phone down on me. Yikes. Yeah. And so I had to get out my own way anyway, which was through my parents eventually. So. Um, and, so they, and I was out of the band. He told me, you're off the band. He says, you can't have nothing to do with the band anymore. <laughs> so when I got out... Did you have any contact with the band after that? Oh, sure. Yeah, but uh, Buddy Miles and Jimi Hendrix and I eventually had a band, and Danny Weiss, the four of us, had a band that played at Steve Paul's scene, the same club, um, later on. And um, this was just the year that Jimmy died, just before that. And, uh, and we would just play there every Wednesday night. But our guest singers were Janis Joplin, Jim Morrison, um, Van Morrison, Joe Cocker, uh, like the stars of the day, right? They, mm-hmm. they would be in town and they would be at the club and they would be the singers. Cause I mean, you got Jimi Hendrix and Jimmy wouldn't play guitar when Danny Weiss was playing because he said, no way I'm playing with that guy. He said, he, he's, he's gonna handle lead guitar. I want to play bass. So instead of, and we said, well, we'll get you a left-handed bass. He said, no way. He said, I'm just going to take this one. And he took a regular bass, turned it upside down and played it without restringing it. So and he did a great job of it too. But did you know he was, at that point, did you know he was great? Oh boy, did I. I I'd been yeah. following him. I, I was at the Salvation when he burned his guitar and set the ceiling on fire that drove everyone out with the fire department going crazy. There was only one exit. And I'd seen him play three or four times. Plus, I met him when he was playing with Wilson Pickett, and he was just playing rhythm guitar. Right. Uh, But, oh, yeah, I knew how great he was for sure. And, you know, he was just, he was Jimmy, you know. But him and Buddy were tight, and they loved playing with me and Danny because Danny and I were tight, so the rhythm section was tight, right? They could call almost any singer up, and we would cut it. I loved that. It was a very nice little band. So you went back and joined Rhinoceros? Yeah, what happened was then I was walking down the street after I got out of jail. And uh, again, penniless, living on a park bench. And who comes walking down the street? John Finley. 
from the checkmates. I said, what are you doing here? He tells me, and he said, what are you doing here? I told him, and he said, well, do you have any place to stay? I said, no. He says, come on, you can stay at the uh, Tropicana with me. He says, I'll get you a cot, you sleep on the floor. So he explained to me they were having tryouts for this new band called Supergroup that Electra was putting together. Mm-hmm. I showed up at rehearsal one day because I'm just like staying in the hotel room with them. And somebody asked me, you know, oh, hey, you play, you want to, you know, play a little bit? They started to play, and then um, sooner or later, one, one or another thing happened, and I ended up being the organist for the band. Things just happened to you. I know. I, <laughs> I've had them happening for quite a while, and, and uh, I'm not questioning it. You know, I, I just figured, well, what happens, happens. But And then you wound up, I don't know how many years after that, you wound up working with Lou Reed. Yeah. Is that right after Rhinoceros? Oh, uh, no, after Rhinoceros. Uh, Rhinoceros was breaking up and nobody had any money left. Our hearts were broken because of the Woodstock thing. And everybody wanted to go their separate ways. And I made an offer to the band and I said, well, if I bring the band up to Toronto, I will book the band myself on the college circuit for just long enough for everybody to put their pockets full of money before they go to their separate ways. Everyone went for the idea. And I did that. I, I put us in a number of, you know, colleges, university mm-hmm. colleges, dates. And we did that for, I don't know, half a year, three quarters of a year. Everybody went home with about, with about 10 grand to their place. Like what would you have gotten paid, if you don't mind me asking? Well, a gig. 1500 a night, you okay. know, 2000 a night. Rhinoceros, you know, and then we would like, came to the point where everybody had enough money, they wanted to go to their various, wherever they wanted to go. So then, what was left of the band, who stayed in town, I reorganized it and it became Blackstone, or the Blackstone Rangers, it was originally called. Um, We had to change our name to Blackstone because I got a phone call from Chicago, from the lawyer of the Blackstone Rangers, which was the black arm of the uh, or the, they were the motorcycle gang part of the Black Panthers. Huh. Anyway, they were called the Blackstone Rangers. Probably, probably and I was told idea. to get rid of the name or else. And it scared me enough. I said, and I asked the lawyer, I said, suppose we take Rangers off. Can I call the band Blackstone? Is that going to get us any trouble? He says, well, I guess not. It was the name of a magician. I can't really tell you you can't use it. He said, don't use Blackstone Rangers. That's our name. I said, never be used again. So... Well, we made, I made a record. We, Paul, Paul Rothschild and I did this record with the band at RCA Studios there. Uh, and it's just called Blackstone on the line. And uh, it doesn't have Rangers on it. So we did that for a while. And then um, Weiss and Finley and I moved to L.A. and began getting involved in bands there. Half a dozen different bands there, uh, different types of operations. And at this point, is the motivation to make it big yep. or just to gig? No, to make it big, to try to make it big. And w- who would Frustratedly you... so, because now you're not in a band that's really well known anymore. Right. When you well, said, "Let's," I want my band to be big, I want them to be as big as what kind of band? Who well, would be? As big as the Beatles. Okay, you know? all right. Or the Stones, you know, like big, big, big. You want to be big, I yeah. mean, if you're in it, you know. And when you're young, when you're that young, you don't think that there's a possibility that you can only get so big and not any bigger, but once you're big, you're big. You're going to be big, big, big. So you don't have an idea yet, right? No, but obviously obviously tasting some fame with Electric Flag and seeing some money, 
Well, yeah, and I was, and I knew what it was like to be treated really well. I mean, I'd already been spoiled to death with some with some of these situations, uh, that I'd also been tossed out, you right. know, and living on the street. So, I, I, um, I knew that it was very possible to go like to from next to nothing, to you know, to being you know like having a lot of money and being fairly popular. Like first couple of gigs I did with Electric Flag, all of a sudden there were the girls again and money in the pocket, the hotel rooms, everything. Limos, all the stuff I wanted. But that's basically what you want when you're a kid, right? Girls, limos, right. and and whatever what, drugs you can get your hands on, and you know. <laughs> what did you learn from the time on the park bench? You know what I learned? I learned that New Yorkers are. At first, I thought New Yorkers were a little bit rough and tough because compared to Toronto people, they were rude. When they bumped into you on the street, they never said excuse me. They'd push you out of the way in line for something or another. When they talk to you, they'd just say, yeah, yo, none of this please and thank you stuff. I was raised as a Boy Scout, so all of this was... And I thought, hey, New York, you know, these people are rude. Living on the park bench decided me otherwise. I decided that New York was filled with all kinds of people, and some of them were absolutely beautiful. I, I began to fall in love with New York at that point. And, uh, you know, regardless of whether I was on the bench or not, I met so many different kinds of people. Mm -hmm. And um, I really got into just talking to the different ones, you know. Just walking around town and, you know, um, occasionally somebody would chat, start chatting, and you'd chat with them and learn a whole new, something new that day, you know. Right. So going to, going back to, now you've headed to L.A. with Blackstone. Yeah. What happens next? Okay, um, we we um, we moved into a, a house in Trancas Canyon. The very like okay, there's uh, Topanga Canyon, Malibu Canyon. You know, like the canyons right. going up from Hollywood on that up the coast. The next one up from Malibu was Trancas Canyon. Trancas Canyon is beautiful because at the bottom of it is Zuma Beach, where they filmed uh, uh, Planet of the Apes, where the uh, uh, you know the uh, Statue of Liberty is right. washing up and all that. Uh, but at the top of the cat, very top of it, was this gorgeous ranch called the Kincaid Ranch, the old Kincaid Ranch. Ranch, and you could see it. It was used for films for the old westerns, lots and lots of it. it was owned by the Everly Brothers. We rented it from the Everly Brothers. Had a thousand acres of wildlife preserve behind it, but we rented that ranch, and Finley, Weiss, myself, and Hodgson moved into it, and uh, and we lived there. While we each did whatever we could to get band, we wanted to work together always, but sometimes one of us had ended up in one band or another. Weiss and I ended up sticking together like glue all the time. And, uh, and we did all kinds of bands. A band called the 11th Hour, which was a bondage band. And we would be dressed in latex with all these silver trappings and that. And, uh, you know, uh, everybody carrying whips and chains and everything else. And Bob Crew was in charge of that whole outfit. He's the guy that wrote uh, Voulez-vous, Couchez, Vic Mar. He also wrote Silhouettes, and he was a major league producer. Right. Gay guy, you know, that was pretty well in charge of everything he did. You know, uh, he put us in, he, he ran us through a couple of little things. We did sessions, recording sessions and everything. Um that's when I did sessions with the, uh, I did a session with the Everly Brothers then. I worked with Frankie Valley and some people like that, you know, just recording. And uh, not a lot of live gigs, but uh, some TV stuff. And, and what year would this be? 73. Okay. That was 73. 
74. See, before we left Toronto, one of the bands that we had in Toronto, aside from Blackstone, was a band with Prakash, Whitey, me, and Weiss, right? Um, and and we became a, a really a, a menacing rhythm section, really good, and we would do work for various people. Prakash and Whitey took off to New York. Weiss and I went to L.A. In 74, early 74, I got a phone call from Prakash, and he said, I want you and Danny to come to New York. What for? To join the Lou Reed band. Wow, wow, who's Lou Reed? He said, walking the wild side, man. Said, oh, 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 that guy. And I'm thinking, geez, I don't know if I want to really do that kind of stuff. So what was the concern, though? What did you think it would be? It wasn't, it wasn't Your kind of music. black enough for me, hmm. basically, if right. I was to think that way now. But I don't think that way anymore. But, I, you know, I thought at the time, I don't want to do white music. I really, you know, I'm right. not interested in it. I'm interested in... People like Ray Charles and Otis Redding and that kind of that kind of music. And you know, this would have been soul music. Lou Reed would have been doing the rock and roll animal thing, right? Just finished the rock and roll animal record. Right. So we got there and we and the first record we recorded, we we uh, we started uh, arranging immediately was uh, Sally Can't Dance, and we went on with that. We did a European tour. Or two, and then uh, percussion. Where he went with Alice Cooper, who gave him a nice offer. Danny and I stayed with Lou, but we had Hunter and Wagner on guitar as well. So Hunter goes. He leaves. He goes to go with Alice. Wagner says, "I can handle this working with Weiss." He couldn't. After a short while, Weiss and him. Dick Wagner just said, "You know what? You don't need me here." He said, "Weiss covers not only all the guitar parts, but another fourteen you've never thought of before." He says, that's okay, I'm going. I had an offer from Alice, too. I'm going over there. So then there was Weiss, and Weiss just said, you know what, I don't want to do this anymore. And he got out of there and went to L.A. The band basically changed at that point, and that was around the same time Lou asked me to be musical director and lead his band for him. So we did that, and I was with him till about 1980, 81, around that time. So how did it how did it come about that you became his musical director? Just because you were in the band, or was it more to it than that? Well, because I had such a, a good hand in the arrangements, but also because I saved his life one night. Uh, when we were in Stockholm, and two Russian sailors uh, walking down the street made a crack at Lou. Him and I were walking down there, made a crack at Lou, and said, who's this fag? And one of them pushed Lou. Well, I'd had enough drinks at that point that... I took them both out. I took them out real fast, too. Five this seconds is, this later, is you're... they were both unconscious on the ground. And Lou was so stunned, took me to his room and said, from now on, you're going with me everywhere I go. I said, oh, Lou, 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 Lou. He said, okay, he says, I'm going to make you the leader of the band. He said, you'll be in charge of all the arrangements, musical director. The band will answer to you. You'll answer to me. And I said, I want to race. He said, okay, wham, he put me on retainer and then plus paid me for all the gigs and records on top of that. So now he's shooting me a thousand US a week, no matter where I am, whether I'm working or not. And I get paid for all the other stuff. Now, are you thinking this is a success that you were thinking of or is it? You know what? I was stupid enough to think it was successful enough. So I just started spending my money on limos, hookers and drugs, just like the rest of the rock and roll guys I knew. Right. And I blew a ton of dough. I mean, we went around the world three times. I just, I, I, I thought money was supposed to be for spending, right? It just, money leaves me like it's shot out of a cannon. 
It's like I, it goes in there and it goes flying out there, you know. But you had a good time. Oh boy, <laughs> I don't regret one second of it. Um, tell me about working with Lou Reed. What was that like? Well, it was really good for me um, in a lot of ways. Uh, I found out that most people thought of him as the Antichrist almost because he was frightening and he would take over a room when he walked in. He had such a dominant personality and everything, but he didn't do that with me. Mm-hmm. Um, so it didn't bother me too much. Uh, but working with him was difficult at times, especially when he'd pull the band on stage and then he would be so stoned that He'd leave the stage to go back and get another fix of whatever it was he was doing. And we, meanwhile, we had to play. He did shows that sometimes were up to four hours long, you know? So the roadies would have buckets behind our amplifiers backstage that we could go behind and have a pee at and two before. Like, you know, really, while the show was going on, you'd pee like three, four times in, in four hours, you know? <laughs> That's when I stopped drinking beer when I was playing. <laughs> I just stopped altogether, right? Switched to red wine. Wow. Uh, but working with Lou was was good. It was great for me, and uh, it was pretty spectacular because in North America, he's like, uh, you know, he's a, a, um, his, the artist that he is. He's considered, uh, I don't know, you know, not not a huge artist. No, but I think he was very, very well respected. Yes. In Europe and Asia, another story. First gig I did with him, Wembley Stadium, 102,000 people. We had headlined with The Who. Um. We never played Italy or Spain for a crowd less than 100,000 people. They had to use the town parks and stadiums in order to fit the crowd in. Um, you know, we get off the plane in Tokyo, and there's 10,000 people on the tarmac with a whole bunch of guys with martial arts outfits on uh, in a big ring around the plane so that we don't get mobbed when we get off. Like, Lou was really big in those places. So hmm. you get used to thinking, okay, great, we are the Beatles, you know, or something like that, you know. And what's it like to play in front of 100,000 people? Mm, it's, it's, it's beautiful. Like when any, anything um, larger than a few thousand people where like you can see the end of the crowd easily, when it gets big enough that you can hardly see the other end of the crowd, yeah. it's all the same from that point on. 100,000, 60,000, 20,000. It's like a lot, just a lot of people, you know? Over in Europe, they used to tell you how great they, how much they liked you by throwing bottles at the stage and shooting up fireworks like Roman candles and things right at the band, you know. And that was their way of expressing themselves how how much they liked it. You know? <laughs> oh, nice! Yeah, yeah, that's crazy. I mean, I got I got hit with a quart bottle of Liebfrau-Milch uh, right between the eyes in uh, Glasgow. That stopped the show, and they had a riot. Um, another time, um, I forget what I think it was Roman candle uh, that. Uh, somebody had been meant to shoot up in the air, but it went almost sideways and uh, and blew up part of the uh, PA stack. Lou called the band off the stage. He says, "We're not going on anymore." And we and uh, and they rioted. They set the place on fire, and we had to hole out in a bunker uh, that underground until they the police were able to clear the place. That was in Aarhus, Denmark. Another time, um, it was the Capitol Theater in Passaic, New Jersey. Guy jumps up out of the front row with a 38, aims it at Lou and fires one off. Miss Lou went right underneath his arm and shot my organ, my Hammond organ, went right through the tone wheel, and I was holding a cord down and it went, Ew. you know how it does that when you used to turn off the <laughs> guys used to turn off the thing and turn it back on. So, um, and that, this is how brave our roadies were. Both of our roadies, after the first shot, 
charged out in front, put their bodies in front of Lou and leaped off the front of the stage and disarmed the guy before he was able to get his second shot off and the gun was still loaded too, hmm. it had more in it. And uh, and they, they actually put their lives on the line for that. I, I'd never seen anything like it. And now these are British roadies are the best, <laughs> the very best in the world. And they're so good at what they do and boy, are they, they're committed, you know. So what made you leave Lou's band? Oh, Lou, um, Lou got very sick. Um, from, um, you know, I guess you don't have to tell anybody that he, sh he was a speed freak, right? So, yeah. Like, most people think he was a heroin addict because he had a song called Heroin. Yeah. It wasn't heroin, he was a, a methadrine addict. So, um, but, and a very, very heavy drinker. So, between methadrine and scotch, he had screwed up his liver. The doctor said, you know what? If you have another drink or another shot, your liver's going to explode. By that time, it was probably the size of a couch, anyways. He, he just, he was getting sick and sicker. His eyes were turning yellow. And, uh, and I was even thinking he was going to die of cirrhosis or something. So, uh, but his doctors told him that, and he took advice from them. He said, Fafi, he said, I got to just call it off for a little while while I take it easy. I'm going out to my farm. He had a nice place out near the Pocono Mountains. He said, so do what you want. Go visit your parents, anything you like. So, so I did that. And, and I was talking to him shortly after that. He couldn't pick up the guitar. He couldn't write one word. It took him three years before he was able to even start writing properly again. Mm. And what were you thinking at this point? Oh, I came up here. See, in, in, in 1975, uh, Lou took about almost a year off for a vacation. I came up to visit my parents and I joined Rough Trade. That's when I did the Rough Trade stuff. Okay. I liked the directed desk album and that. I went back to play with him. But when I came back up that time, uh, I was here for about a week and I went down to hear a band called the Lincolns. Danny Weiss was in the Lincolns. And Prakash asked me to join, so I joined the Lincolns. And I started on this touring routine with the Lincolns. Um, you were also doing a lot of studio work, right? And you were on Foreigners. Did the Foreigner 4 album. See, I had a band before Lou Reed, uh, before he stopped playing, I was working for Arista Records as his producer, right? For Clive, D Clive oh, okay. Davis was my boss, right? So um, I was doing that and I got together with some other guys and we formed a band, a power pop band. Sounded like a cross between Boston and Foreigner. It was a designer band that was aimed at, an audi at audiences, but we were really good. Plus I had a lawyer and his name was Bob Casper. He was Elton John's lawyer was my lawyer too so he started he liked the band so much he began to negotiate us getting a record deal based on our demo so uh, the name of the band at that time was cash believe it or not c-a-s-h we had it all on our road cases and everything right. we started a bidding war between a&m atlantic and arista and um a&m we should have gone with because they would have treated us the best atlantic offered the most money no, they didn't. Atlantic offered a whole bunch of other things that seemed really good to me, but Arista gave us the most money. Clive just said, whatever it is, he's like Donald Trump. He just said, okay, whatever it is, I'm topping the bid. Boom, boom, boom. We just kept laying out money. And my lawyer just said, Bob said, you know what? He said, I know you like the look of the other companies. He said, but nobody turns down money. He said, if you accept this deal, it'll be the biggest money deal ever given to a band yet in history. And, I mean, uh, aside from the money that he put out to make the records, or make the record, uh, 
Everybody got a humongous signing bonus. Everybody had their own stylist, their own driver, and clothing budgets. Uh, all these things. Like so, you know, there's a person that's whose job is to take you out and make sure you're dressed and looking properly for wherever you go. Right. <sighs> Unbelievable. And he used to drag us down to Studio 54 in the limo to show off the band. It's nice looking. The band was called Tycoon. We had to change the oh, name. Oh, yeah, okay. Because he couldn't go for the name Cash. He says, it's too pretentious. I said, good. Let's get for another name. We ended up with Tycoon. And, and he also did a, the greatest thing for us. He chose Mutt Lang to produce it. Sent us to England. We lived in England. And we recorded at the, the same studio Queen recorded it. Mutt Lang and I became friends. I lived at his house in England. Then, when that band broke up, Mutt got to New York. And he called me and he said... I want you to show up at Electric Ladyland on Thursday. I said, wow, what's the session for? He says, I'll let you know when you get there. And I walked in and there's Foreigner on the floor, right? So, and, and so the first song I did was Urgent. So it opens up with that dun, dun, yeah. dun, dun. It sounds like a guitar, but it's me on the Yamaha Dream Machine. Oh, really? Yeah. So I did a couple songs with them. And anyways, that was good for me, I guess. And that's the one with Junior Walker. Junior Walker was there that day and I watched him do his solo. The, all the rest of the sax on the record is the sax player from my band Tycoon, Mark Rivera. Oh, okay. You must know who he is. He went on Billy Joel, yeah, Paul yeah, and Oates, yeah. and he's Ringo's sax player now. Yeah, great sax player, but nobody in the world could do that solo like Junior Walker. Boy, when he did that, and he did it, he, would ju he just took his corn out of his case, got it in tune. He says, okay, play it by for me. They played it once. He says, okay, play it again. Put it in record. Mutt goes, mm, okay. He tells the engineer, put it in record. Junior honked one out, and he starts to pack his horn out. Uh, you know, puts it away in the case. And Mutt gets on to talk back to him. He says, uh, what are you doing, changing mouthpieces? You got another horn or what? And he says, no, no, you recorded that, didn't you? He said, yeah. He says, then you got it. And he just kept packing up, and Mutt's going, wait a minute, wait a minute. And he tells the engineer, play that back. As, as Junior's walking out the door with his check, Five grand he got for paying that one for playing that one solo. He's walking out the door with his check, and Mutt's going, God damn it, I can't believe it. It is the best solo. And and still, like he couldn't no, nothing he could do could get around that solo. It no, was the one. Like and and one pass for Junior, right? He just knew what to do. And uh, that was kind of cool. Mark got all the rest of the sacks on that album, you know, and then went on the road with them. I was offered the road trip, but I was up against Thomas Dolby and one other big, uh, some kind of heavy name synthesizer player, and I didn't get the gig. It's amazing where you've been and what you've done. A few things, yeah, well, <laughs> the odd thing, you know. But, I mean, okay, so all these opportunities that happen, because, you know, if I met somebody and they told me one of those stories, I'd say, wow, that's amazing. The fact that you've kind of crisscrossed many different great bands and played in many well-known bands doing probably the height of the music scene. Like, what, what do you attribute that to? Is it just, is it a work ethic? Is it luck? Is it... You know what? I, I don't know what it is, but when I play, I don't play music so much as it plays me. I'm lost. I'm, I'm, I'm lost in it from the first note on. Um, I'm just captivated by it so much so that I just leave the bloody planet. I don't... I don't even know what I'm doing or what my body looks like when I'm playing or anything. The music goes, it just surges through me in place. It plays me. So I don't think about what I'm doing when I'm playing. I, I just let it 
do it. And I got the muscle memory from playing for what, um, 65, 65 years. Right. So my fingers can pretty well do anything they want to do. And I'm just going, I don't, you know, it's no sense in me thinking about it. I don't even, I just don't think about it. Once I'm set up and I play a couple notes and close my eyes, it sounds good to me. From that point on, the gig is beautiful. So Tycoon did an album. Did they do more than one or? No. Second album, we we sold 300,000 right out of the gate in a, in one week. And then we did a cross uh, U.S. tour. We did really well on it. Second album's coming up. Clive is thrilled. Um, he's laid out way more than a million dollars already. Biggest deal that they've ever done. And we're writing songs, and I am convinced, and so is everybody else in the band, convinced that this, the next, this batch of songs is even better than the first. Clive says, I don't hear any hits. So what do you mean you don't hear any hits? He says, no singles. He says, this is all great album stuff. He said, I don't hear any singles. I said, this one's a single, that one's a single. He says, I know what I'm talking about here. I, come on, Clive, you know, we've got better stuff than we had before. He said, it might be better musically. You might even have better vocals. He said, but I don't hear hit records. And that's my business. So he's brought in outside writers, you know, right. anywhere he could get songs. We hated every song he sent us. Every single one. They weren't right for the band, right? So we had this big fight with him. And I don't know how this happened. And by this time, we owed Eris to way over a million dollars. And... Clive wrote the contract off, ate the difference, and let everybody go. Because that's the thing, right? That's the thing that a lot of people don't None understand. None of us were, you know, required to have anything to do with it later. No money we owed, no nothing, and none of that. Completely free and clear, signed out legally of the contract. I've, I've hardly ever heard of that. And uh, it let every one of us go to do whatever it is we wanted to do. Hmm. Yeah. And how did you feel at that point? Well, I, I felt uh, I felt pretty good about being set free without being in debt for a right. good, good chunk of a million dollars. But I also was disappointed that he didn't see... To me, he didn't have the vision we did. I told him, too. I said, you know what? We had an argument with this. I said, you know, you have to build a band. I said, after the success of the last record, you watch, we're going to get out on the road again. We're going to grassroots promote the bugger. We'll be in every record store in every town we play in. We're going to all the radio stations to do stings. We're inviting all the people that we know in the business to come to every gig. Um, you know, the band is going to take part in this promo. We're going to be working to build the band. He said, I still don't hear any hit singles. He said, I need a hit single right off the bat for this album. He ended up tearing up the contract and turning us loose. So, I mean, actually, I was quite happy about that, too, in one way, you know. Well, when you think about, I mean, I don't think a lot of people realize that when you sign these big contracts, that, you know, when, when you're signing for your hairstylists and your clothes and stuff, oh, there's I a lot of the money. Oh, I the limo drivers, the stylists, and, oh, I just loved it, you know. Having a clothing budget, like a separate account that just had nothing to do with going to buy clothes. Yeah. And, you know... I want a new pair of shoes, and I'd go out and buy a really good <laughs> pair of shoes. It was, it was pretty cool. That's pretty crazy, though. It is. When you think about it. It's so, nuts. I wouldn't you... even go to the, do my laundry without a limo. <laughs> I'd pick up the phone. Wait, you did your laundry? <laughs> well, I, there, was a, there was a Chinese laundry that I, I just loved, and it was on, across town. 
and I and I would go there instead of taking a cab there and with my laundry and all that. I, I would use a limo. I'd go and go shopping to the grocery store, or go get the liquor store or something. Limo. Okay, so what did you learn from that experience? That I that that I was overspending, but I enjoyed it so much <laughs> at the time. And then is that when you came back to Toronto? Um, well, I came back to Toronto. Uh, yeah, not long after that. I had fi- the tycoon thing was had we had, uh, had it out with Clive, but I still had to finish. I um, I was uh, uh, producing and co-writing the last Lou Reed album I did growing up in public at George Martin's studio, who, uh, yes. God forbid, has just died. Yeah. Yeah. Um, and a good friend of mine, I talked to him not long ago, just over a month ago. And um, anyway, so, so we went to Montserrat to do that record. It was shortly after that record that I that Lou was given the orders by the doctor to have. Right. But it was great for me because... Uh, it's the only record Lou ever did like this. He wrote all the lyrics. I wrote all the music. Like he never actually split writing with anybody. He used to do all the writing himself, right? So, so we did that. Do you still see royalties from that, or is that something I you do, signed? Yeah, out? I see oh, some from European royalties from certain songs. Like there's one song we wrote called "The Power of Positive Drinking." Well, it's a big jukebox head in Europe. It's still well, not a big, but I mean, we still got checks here and there. You know? Well, that's nice. Yeah, not big ones, but they're still it's still around, and. Um, and actually, that one I wrote on guitar, and then he came up with some. We, he, I was just playing it for him, and he starts with the power of uh, positive thinking and changed it to drinking because we were pounding the stuff back. And he says, "We're going in tomorrow to do it." So, and I played guitar on the record. It's the first record I ever played guitar <laughs> on in my life. So that was fun for me. I didn't even know you played. But guitar. George was so perfect because he'd come in and give me tips every day. Like I learned how to produce from three of the greatest producers in the world: Paul Rothschild. Um, he taught me so much. Then Mutt Lang, again, taught me so much. And then George Martin. Those are pretty impressive so people. Between those three guys, I think I might have had the three best th- producers that I could ever think of to influence my approach to producing. So, uh, again, I was lucky. Another great thing that happened to me, right? So, Were you ever bitter about the music industry? No. I mean, I've had my moments when I've woken up with a hangover and broke and said, yeah, a little bit, but that doesn't last more than a half an hour. I, you know, I can't, I can't hold a grudge. I, I just, um, it's, it's like excess baggage, you know, wasting psychic energy. You're just carrying too much stuff around. Why, why be thinking about that when you could be thinking something positive? What to do about it? Remedy it. Don't, right. don't be bitter about it. I mean, if you look at any business, um, the people that are doing well in business aren't the ones that are bitter. They're the ones that have decided to go ahead positively and make the bloody business happen. And it, it all sort of added up to me that when I'm not, if I'm not doing very well at something and, it's, and I'm bitter, start getting bitter about it, all I have to do is look around and I eventually look right there and I see myself as being the one that's responsible for it. So I can't blame anybody for anything, you know? So then... I'm left with, you know, one choice. It's either do something about it or don't do something about it. Lay around feeling semi-guilty that you didn't do something about it, bitching and moaning and trying to find something else to do. I'd rather take the challenge of doing something about it. And, uh, you know, unless it's not making me upset. If it's not making me upset, then I don't usually jump, you know. Well, the other thing is, I mean, I've I've seen you. We've worked in the studio together. I I think it was Jack's album that... I remember doing yes, some video yeah. with you, and and I've seen you 
with with Downchild in the studio. I mean, y- you love what you do. Yes, and oh, and that comes through. Like every time yeah. I see you, yeah. it's obvious that I I I do love it. I love it. You know, every note just from the get. You know. So tell me how you got into Downchild. Um, Pat Carey and Chuck Jackson were in Downchild, right? Right. And they were uh, we were playing in bands together, and. Uh, and I just said to Pat, I said, get me in the band. And he said, okay, well, I'll ask Donnie. And then Chuck said, well, I'll talk to him too. So at this time, they didn't have a keyboard player. The last one was Jane, you know, and mm-hmm. she, and Donnie wasn't interested in keyboard players because of, you know, he was in love with Jane. And when she died of cancer and everything, he decided not to have a keyboard player. So I, uh, I was at, I forget, it was Madam's, a club called Madam's at the time, and Donnie was there watching us play. And he just asked me to join, right? So I said, okay, tell you what, since you asked me, I'll join under one condition. He said, what's that? I said, I get to produce the next couple of albums. So he gave it to me. So I did. I produced the one uh, Good Times Guaranteed, Lucky 13, and then co-produced one more with him, and then he decided that he knew what I was doing, so he told me that I wasn't producing anymore, and he was going to do it himself. <laughs> well, basically, he waits for Al Stu, the engineer, to do all that work, and then he puts his name on it and says, I produced it. So, <laughs> that's okay with me. I, you know, I got what I wanted in that case, you know. And tell me about what it's like to play with Down Child. Oh, it's lovely. I mean, we, we, we get treated like kings everywhere we go. It's beautiful, you know. Um, it's great playing on stage. I get... You know, I get a round of applause or sometimes standing ovations for just about every solo. And uh, and I really feel appreciated. And um, It's and one I, of the few blues bands who actually puts on a show. I mean, it's a set show. Yeah. Donnie does does a show. He's He sticks to his, like, he's just stuck to his plan all the way along. Still doing what he wanted, you know, just, you know, today's version of what he wanted. Right. And he, uh, he's never swayed from that, except that he did allow us to bring... Uh, a New Orleans influence into his Chicago blues, which was always like pretty strictly uh, regular three-chord Chicago blues. We brought the New Orleans influence in, right? Just slightly different style, uh, piano, drums, you know, just a wee bit different. Not through the whole thing, but we entered it into the downchild thing, and, and he took to it pretty well. He lets us get away with a bit of that. So, So now, I mean, I can play... Like, I can play a solo in Downchild. I can play, a, if I want, like a sort of a jazzy solo, and even, in, in, in a blues song, and he doesn't mind that at all, you know? Because, well, if the audience is applauding, he doesn't mind it. If they weren't applauding, I suppose he'd come to me and say, get back to the blues. Right. It took me six years before I was able to play anything other than what he told me. He said he wanted me to learn every note that Jane Vasey played and that... Um, um, Mm-hmm. Uh, Gene, um, uh, uh, Gene from, Taylor from the Thunderbirds. Yeah, the stuff that they played, he wanted me to learn all their stuff first before anything else. Six years before he said to me, turned around to me one night, he says, "Well, I guess you got that together. You're on your own." And uh, that was after six years. So how that make you feel? It made me feel great that I actually took the challenge on and did what it was that he he wanted me to do. At first, I was in my mind, I was rallying against it. I thought. Who does he think he is telling me how to play the blues or whatever, like to do this or that? Um, he should just cut me loose. I'll show him. He d- and instead of that, I just said, you know, I bit the bullet and I said, you know what? I'm going to do what he wants me to do. And I did it. I learned note for note what they were doing. 
And then one day he came to me, he says, I guess you're doing it right. You're on your own. That was great. And ever since then, he's never said one word to me. I get to play anything I want. It's like the band's playing. I just float free all over them. I can play in and out anytime I want, everywhere I want. He never has a problem with it. And, um, And it was great. I think the six years that I put in learning all that stuff really gave me a really nice base to be in the band, um, you know, like in this solid platform, to be able to to roam around and to range about musically. Because when I come back, I'm coming back to a solid blues platform, which consists of what he wanted in the first place. So I think it was good for me. And you do a bunch of other things. You still do a lot of session work. You also yeah, work yeah. with a lot of different I artists. I just produced uh, the Wooden Teeth album, but they're not called Wooden Teeth anymore. They took the word wooden off. It's just called Teeth now. <laughs> And I'm producing Omar's new record and Vito's new record. And um, what else am I doing? I just did Mike Fitzpatrick's record. And I got a couple more lined up. Uh, You've told us about this amazing journey that you've taken with some really fascinating characters and some landmarks and milestones in, in rock history. There's one other thing that you do that I'm, I know of that I want you to talk about, which was the work you do at the Sunnybrooks Hospital. Mm-hmm. Can you talk about that a little bit? Sure. Um, we entertained the war veterans in the K-Wing, and uh, of which there aren't, I don't think there are any Second World War veterans left. I, I believe the last one died a few months ago. Mm. The average age there is 92, and there's two or 300 of them in wheelchairs that come when we play. I love it because I get to play grand piano, no mics. Pat Carey plays sax in the air. And he was a little wee public address system for Chuck to sing over. And, uh, or if Chuck can't do it, it'll be Virgil or Johnny Wright. But it's playing grand piano. I'm nuts about it. So I'm going to sit there and play. And, uh, and we've been doing it for about 15 years now. And, uh, you know, the, the, and, and the sad part of it is that I have met and begun to know so many of them who are now passed on. In fact, there was, there was a number of them I used to go visit upstairs in their rooms before we'd play and, uh, you know, just have a little chat here and there and stuff like that. They're no longer visitable because they don't live. But um, for me, it's a, it's a gig that, you know, uh, I would pretty well do anything uh, to do that gig because as far as I'm concerned, and I wasn't around when these guys were fighting the Korean Wars or whatever they were doing, but... As far as I'm concerned, they put their lives on the line for our lifestyle over here. Mm-hmm. I know maybe that's not what the way everyone else would look at it, but that's what they did as far as I'm concerned. And for that, I would play for them, no matter where, when, or whatever. Michael, it's been such a pleasure. Thank you so much for doing this. Well, thank you, and um, it was nice to be here. It's always nice to talk to you, Michael. Thanks. We didn't get around to any of the funny, uh, dirty stories, but that's okay. <laughs>